This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. I'm Deborah Yao, senior editor here, and today I have the great pleasure of welcoming Wharton professor Kevin Warbach to our studio. Kevin has written a book on Bitcoin and the blockchain, which is a very hot topic these days. The book is called The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks so much. So tell us, what got you interested in Bitcoin and the blockchain? I study emerging technologies. I'm a legal scholar by training, but I'm interested in internet-related technologies that have significant business impacts. And like many people, I first heard of Bitcoin several years ago when it was still very small and found it fascinating, this idea that it was possible to create money, something that stored value in a decentralized way, and that it actually worked, that, that people would actually trust it as being valuable. That I found tremendously interesting, but it was only when the whole blockchain space developed and became a broader kind of business environment a few years later that I really started to increasingly focus my research on this area because really blockchain is a fusion of law, business, technology, economics, all these different areas where I have some expertise and where I think there's really potentially huge opportunities uh, to create new kinds of organizations and new kinds of business opportunities. That's really in your wheelhouse. Um, One thing about your book that struck me was that it makes a great effort to be precise uh, about a topic that confuses many people. So maybe perhaps we could uh, start by you explaining the difference between Bitcoin and the blockchain. This is important. And, And one of the reasons that I wrote the book was because I was speaking to many people, uh, senior business executives, policymakers, and others who were smart people, tech-savvy people, who would say to me, I just don't get this blockchain thing, or I just don't get this Bitcoin thing. And not, not necessarily that I reject it, I just don't quite understand what's going on. And so I tried to write something that was a deep substantive treatment of the issues that goes into legal questions and policy questions, but that starts with articulating for a broad audience what's going on here. So the first piece of this is uh, that there are actually several different related phenomena. Bitcoin was the first piece to come on the scene. The Bitcoin white paper was released uh, on Halloween 2008, and the Bitcoin network started operating early 2009. So it's about a decade old now. Bitcoin is a private digital form of money. So the idea with Bitcoin was, can we create something that has the same functions as money, uh, which means people trust that it's still valuable, it can be used as a means of exchange or a store of value or a unit of account in theory, without a central entity issuing it or validating transactions. So that was really the starting point for the whole blockchain space, although it turns out that when you look at Bitcoin technically, it was actually based on, in many cases, earlier work that had been done in related areas, which has now been used in some of these other um, implementations other than Bitcoin. And so the blockchain is the technology underlying the Bitcoin, and that's that's what makes it different. Yeah, so Bitcoin is uh, what's called a cryptocurrency. And a cryptocurrency is basically a, a token of value uh, on one of these decentralized networks. The broadest term for the decentralized networks is distributed ledger technology, or DLT. And that encompasses a whole wide range of things. Uh, on the one hand, these 
what are called permissionless open systems like Bitcoin. And there are now something like 1,600 other cryptocurrencies that are out there, although most of them are not particularly used or valuable. And these allow anyone to be on the network. Not only can anyone make a transaction, but in most cases, anyone can be a validator, can be in the role of verifying that transactions are accurate. And what's extraordinary is that these technologies uh, make it trustworthy to have uh, this system, uh, even though anyone can be on the network. That's the cryptocurrencies, and they're based on these underlying networks, as you said, called blockchains. And, and blockchain is basically a family of technologies for ordering transactions, for having a decentralized kind of database where there's not one actor that controls it, where multiple parties are in control, but there's still confidence that they're all seeing exactly the same thing. The network comes into what's called consensus. So at any moment, it's possible to be confident that we all see the same information, the same transactions in the same order. For something like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, that means we all see the same balances of money in our accounts, but it's much broader. So uh, a lot of people think that when you talk about Bitcoin blockchain, it's really a system that doesn't need trust. But instead, you're arguing that the blockchain actually represents a new form of trust. That's one of the key mistakes that I see people making. And again, one of the things that motivated me to write the book was I saw all these conversations in the blockchain and cryptocurrency world talking about this as a trustless technology. And the idea was that, well, trust is dangerous. Uh, how do we, if we trust someone, they could abuse our trust, they could take advantage of this. We see that with private companies. So, for example, people uh, stored their data with uh, Equifax and their data was stolen, so they trusted something untrustworthy. Or Facebook, um, which has had all of these issues with Cambridge Analytica and privacy breaches and so forth. Um, so that's part of the concern. So the argument is, well, let's get rid of trust. Let's have a system where we don't have to trust anything except just the technology. And we can look at the code, and it's based on cryptography, which is mathematical information security. And that's all we need. The point I'm making is that even if that's true, and, and I think that is true, I think uh, these cryptocurrencies and blockchain systems have been able to develop robust trust in the ledger itself, in the fact that this asset went from this uh, person or this really cryptographic private key to this other one. It takes more than that to have trustworthy transactions. You need to trust the system as a whole because there might be abuses. You don't necessarily know who you're dealing with. There are other parties that are involved in that validation process and developing the code and so forth. And there are all kinds of situations where even if people aren't bad actors, there are disputes and you need some way to resolve the dispute. So the argument that I make in the book, and that's basically the title, is that blockchain is not the end of trust. Blockchain is a new structure of trust, what I call a new architecture of trust that recreates trust in a different way. So sort of related to that is that when people hear the words trustless system, the connotation is that it's a system of lawlessness. And I think uh, in your book it says that that's exactly the opposite. Uh, is blockchain compatible with the law? It's absolutely compatible with law, but it doesn't embed law in its native state. So Absolutely, these blockchain networks can and are used in some cases to engage in illegal activity. So people use Bitcoin to engage in money laundering, to buy illegal drugs, and so forth. Now, it turns out that law enforcement in many cases has an easier time 
tracing that on the Bitcoin network than on traditional financial networks. Because I go and make a cash transaction, the, the cash is a true bearer instrument, it's hard to trace. Whereas with Bitcoin, it's a public network. All the transactions are public. You just have to associate that cryptographic private key with a human person or entity. And it turns out that there are a variety of sophisticated ways to do that. So there is this illegal activity. There also is fraud going on. For example, there were all of these what are called initial coin offerings, where companies offer these tokens for fundraising. And then there's a ton of scams and fraud in that world. The point I'm making is there's nothing inherent in the technology that will necessarily cause it to be used for illegal activity. Uh, and in fact, there's a vast amount of legitimate legal activity happening. Businesses are deploying on blockchain technology because they see it solving real business problems. The challenge is how to safeguard and promote the legal activity and minimize the illegal activity and do it in a way that doesn't create too much friction in the process. And that requires, unfortunately, a, a fairly slow and at times cumbersome process of figuring out how to put blockchain together with law, regulation, and governance. And that's a lot of what I spend the book doing is outlining how that process actually works. So I'm glad you mentioned that because my next question is, how should regulators approach the blockchain? And you mentioned three questions they should ask to determine whether or not to act. Yeah, well, so in the book, I, I say, first of all, the regulators need to say, is this a system that's designed for legal or legitimate purposes? So there are bad actors out there. There are systems that basically make it harder to track transactions and make it easier to engage in illegal transactions, where that's the point of the system. And we saw this 20-odd years ago with peer-to-peer -peer file sharing, with systems like Napster and so forth, where, on the one hand, there were services that clearly were designed to facilitate copyright infringement. And uh, they were shut down. And then there are other systems that use very similar technology. BitTorrent is a good example. The company that makes BitTorrent, which for a while was, was a huge percentage of traffic on the Internet because it was used for sharing video, was never uh, sued successfully, was never shut down by the government because it built a technology that was really valuable, actually, for companies wanting to share media files um, and did what it could to limit the illegal uses. So the first question is, um, who's behind this? And what are the indications about whether they see the potential illegal uses as the goal or something that they want to work on minimizing? The second question is, uh, what are the mechanisms of achieving the government purpose? Um, people in technology, entrepreneurs, and, and people like advocates of cryptocurrencies often think that governments uh, regulate because they want to control things. And I used to be a regulator. I was at the Federal Communications Commission early in my life. Governments generally don't do that. They regulate because they want to uh, address their objectives, uh, serve their missions. Uh, and if your mission, for example, is to combat money laundering uh, and terrorist financing and, and use of um, money to facilitate uh, crime, then you're going to want to come up with a system that does that. So the question is, what are the mechanisms governments can use? As I said, in the case of things like Bitcoin, it turns out that governments can actually track the transactions on the blockchain uh, as opposed to preventing the transactions from happening when those could be legitimate transactions. So that second question is, what are the alternatives for meeting the government need? And then the third one is cost and benefit. There are huge benefits directly in terms of having the regulation to prevent people from losing their money and, and illegal activity. But there's also broader benefits to the blockchain community. It comes back to trust. 
we need a trustworthy environment where ordinary people and existing companies are willing to commit their money and commit their resources to this exotic, weird, decentralized new technology. It has to be trusted. So regulation actually can play a good role there. Regulation also has costs. It can be overbroad. It can limit innovation and so forth if it's not designed well. So regulators need to think hard about those costs and benefits. I think if they ask those three questions together, they'll be well positioned. So let's move on and talk about the potential of the blockchain. Um, so how do you think blockchain technology can be used pragmatically today or in the near future? How do you see it being adapted? Three buckets of adoption that I see. One uh, is uh, cryptocurrencies, which is the most radical but also the least mature part of this world. And uh, that's either using something like Bitcoin as a substitute for money or using these cryptocurrency tokens to power decentralized applications. Because basically, a blockchain is a kind of distributed computer. And it's possible to run applications, just like we have applications running on the internet, running on these decentralized ledger systems. And the, the power there is potentially they're not controlled by any entity. The platforms are not under the control of very powerful intermediaries who have an incentive to bias the system and to pull back the value to themselves. Um, that's an area where there's a huge amount of fascinating experimentation. Uh, and uh, people may have heard of things like CryptoKitties, where there are um, games that are being built on it and, and real applications, but still very, very early, technically very early, very early in terms of adoption. Second bucket is uh, the blockchain, the ledger solutions, which are about tracking things. And it turns out that anytime there are multiple organizations that have to work together on some business process who don't fully trust each other, there's a cost. Right, because they have duplication of information. They each want to keep their own copy of information. They have to reconcile and settle. Um, and you add this up across the entirety of global business. It's, it's trillions of dollars uh, that are lost in these processes. So blockchain, by creating a virtual ledger, a shared source of truth across organizations, can provide value in uh, just a massive range of these applications uh, in pretty much every industry you can think of. In that area, that second category, there is a fair bit of adoption. There are companies that are doing real production systems. There's, there's one uh, consortium I talked to called Hyperledger that has 50 production networks operating on its technology, and that's just one platform, uh, which are the actual system of record between real companies. But in most cases, it's still fairly early. The volumes are still fairly small, um, but it seems to be coming. And then the, the third bucket um, are what I call crypto assets, which is the one where there's actually the most economic activity uh, because it's the least radical. And this is basically uh, Wall Street and the financial system using these as tradable assets, saying basically, okay, if I've got a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or some other token, and there's a confidence, forget about how it gets there, but there's a sufficient confidence that it is an, a legitimate store of value, it's a native digital asset. It's something that can be securitized, that can have rights and responsibilities, can be the basis for derivatives, um, can feed into this massive global financial transactional system that we have. And that's actually the area where over the last year there's been the most activity uh, and I think where we'll see the most, at least, uh, financial transactions in the near term uh, because it requires a little bit of legal clarity. It requires a little bit of building interfaces and middleware systems, which is happening, um, but doesn't have to change 
change the basic structure of the marketplace. Um, and so in that area, we're, we're seeing you know, real interest by institutions and traditional sources of capital because, again, it's a more efficient solution for what they were already doing. You write in the book that blockchain could change the world, but, and this is a quote from you, crucially, how and when remain uncertain. What do you mean by that? Well, that's always the question with transformative technology, right? Anything that is deep enough and significant enough to potentially affect global business is not something that's going to be a light switch. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. And it's not something where it's going to be uniformly adopted because there's costs, uh, because uh, this requires people to think about doing things differently. And there are going to be losers uh, in the move to this new system. So I think if you think of blockchain just as a way to speculate in these tokens or you think about it as an alternative form of money that will only succeed if it replaces the traditional fiat currencies, then I think you're missing the big picture. The real revolution is seeing this at a deep level as a new structure for trust. And when you look at where trust is important in business, it's everywhere. But because it's so broad... That means it's going to be a long unfolding process where we don't know what the killer apps are. I gave you a model of three buckets, but specifically, where is this going to be adopted? What countries, what parts of the world, what industries are going to move first? Uh, in hindsight, it will all be obvious. In hindsight, we'll say, well, yeah, that's the killer app. Of course, you would uh, buy books on the internet. And then, of course, you'd buy everything on the internet on Amazon. Of course, advertising was a way to monetize search into this you know, massive tens of billions of dollars industry. I can tell you at the time, none of those things were obvious. And people were skeptical of all those claims. So it's a similar sort of thing. It's just because the potential is so great here, that's why there's so much uncertainty about exactly what the path forward looks like. So it's been almost a decade since the Bitcoin white paper came about, and yet you don't see, uh, you know, but cryptocurrencies are very popular, obviously, but you don't see the blockchain adoption uh, reaching a stage of maturity that perhaps one would expect. So in, in your view, based on your research and experience, is blockchain really a revolution? We'll see. Uh, I think some aspects of it are clearly revolutionary whether it will actually be a successful revolution, that's the open question. I'm very confident at this point it's not going away. It's going to be widely adopted and just integrated into the fabric of business. Just as many internet technologies have been, we sort of take them for granted now. Um, but it, it took a long time and actually had a lot of challenge to get to the point where it was you know, moving into all of these different companies all around the world in, in a deep way. Um, so I think you somewhat have to choose. If you want the revolution, that's really exciting. Um, but it also reduces the likelihood it's going to happen. I don't, for example, think that Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency will subsume or replace dollars and the existing currencies we have. I think actually what's going to happen is the major governments like uh, the American government, uh, probably sooner than that, the Chinese government and many of the others, will tokenize their currency. They'll use the blockchain technology in a permission way to digitize their fiat currency. Uh, is that a revolution? In some ways, yeah, absolutely. It's not the same revolution as we're all going to be buying things in Bitcoin. I think there's still a place for Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies, but maybe not as much of a sweeping revolution as people think in that vision. So look, it, it depends on whether you're focused on true disruption of the way things are done, which 
very rarely happens. And when it does happen, it has huge costs as well. Or are you saying, what's going to be important? What's going to actually affect business across the board to the point where 10 years from now, no one could ignore it. No one can uh, say that they are an expert on these uh, markets and industries without at least having an understanding of the technology. I think that latter one is where blockchain is going. And if that's not a revolution, fine with me. We'll leave it right there. Thank you very much for joining us. You can find more insights from Knowledge at Wharton on our website, knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find all of our podcasts on iTunes, and we welcome your reviews. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.